Hello, church family. My name is Annie Newfeld. I'm the pastor of small groups here at Lake Avenue Church, and this morning I get the joy and the privilege of bringing God's word to you. Last week, Pastor Chuck preached on the theme of justice from Proverbs 21, and this week I get to examine that same theme through the lens of a parable of Jesus from Luke 18, 1 through 8. So would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? We begin in Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the same plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord. So in our text for today, we read a parable about a widow badgering a judge to give her justice. She comes to him day in, day out, pleading her, her case until finally he relents. We're told in the beginning that this is a story about prayer. So at first glance... Um, it seems like Jesus is telling us that if we are persistent in prayer and if we just keep banging on God's door, he'll give us what we want. It's in this line of thinking that some have titled sermons on this passage, Bothering God. But is this how we're supposed to read this parable? Are we supposed to nag God with our requests, assuming we have to badger him and bang down his door so that he just might bend his ear toward us? My older daughter is four years old and she has this badgering thing down pat. She knows how to push mommy's buttons with a careful and continual repetition of, it's taking a long time. Or mommy, can I have a snack? Mommy, mommy, mommy. The unjust judge in our story would be no match for my four-year-old. She can cut through your resolve with her sheer force of will to get what she wants. And lately, especially at the beginning of COVID, she wanted a unicorn, a living, breathing, real-life unicorn. Despite the countless times that we told her that one, unicorns don't exist. Sorry, kids. Sorry, Isabel. And two, even if unicorns did exist, we don't have room for a life-size unicorn in our two-bedroom Glendale townhome. And yet, she persisted. Eventually, her pleas for a real-life unicorn were addressed to Jesus, along with her prayers for lost puppies. She asked God for a detailed description of a unicorn. One day, though, she seemed quite discouraged. She was, she was really distraught, and so she asked me, Mommy, Jesus isn't answering my prayer for a unicorn. Do you think you can ask him for me? Filled with joy and trying to hold back laughter, I said, well, Isabel, I think God hears your prayers just as much as mine, but sure, I'll ask him too. 
Isabel knows how to keep pounding on the door of power to get what she wants. But is this the model of prayer given to us in our text for today? Does this text imagine a world where we have to badger God for him to listen to us? Is that, is that the God that we believe in? I think most of us would say no, and the text itself says that God is nothing like the unjust judge. But then what is this text saying? I think if, if we're honest, many of us would say that our prayer, prayer lives do feel a bit like Isabel's pleas for a unicorn. But is this what God intends for us? What is this parable about? Well, we'll dive into that in just a moment. But first, in order to understand this parable, we have to understand something about parables in general. Often when we approach a parable, we think of it as a rhetorical tool that makes things simpler and easier to understand. And that's sometimes how parables work. But often in the Gospels, the parables don't function like that. Listen to how N.T. Wright talks about these stories. He said they were, for the most part, not simply illustrations, that is, preacher's tricks to decorate an abstract thought or a complicated teaching. If anything, they were the opposite. Jesus' stories are designed to tease, to clothe the shocking and revolutionary message about God's kingdom in garb that would leave the listeners wondering, trying to think it out. Jesus didn't teach in parables to make everything clear, but to pique the imagination of God's people about the arrival of his kingdom. When we read the parables, we have to resist the urge to make everything really neat and tidy, to fit it into this nice, neat little box and make one-to-one analogies. Instead, our question always has to be, what is this telling me about God and his kingdom? So in light of that, let's get to our parable for today. Starting in chapter 17, Jesus is noticing a mood shift among his disciples. They're weighed down, they're weary, they seem burdened. And they've lost the big picture of what God is doing in this moment. Uh, Jesus had been talking about this coming kingdom throughout his ministry. And the disciples have been longing for it and waiting for it. They're excited for this kingdom to come where all things would be made right. But it's not here yet. And they're getting antsy. And now Jesus is being investigated by the authorities. The Pharisees' suspicion of him rises with each passing moment. And Jesus keeps poking the bear. He keeps getting himself into trouble. He knows this, and he's told them how it's all going to end badly. And so they're starting to think, what do we do now? We've left everything for this guy. They're starting to lose hope. So Jesus speaks directly to where they're at by telling a story about how they should always pray and not give up. He starts by saying in verse 2, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Jesus sets the stage here with two contrasting characters in this story on opposite ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. On the one end, you have the the macho, powerful judge who neither feared God nor cared what people think. Judges were supposed to be unbiased men of integrity and honor, but this judge defies our expectations. He blatantly disregards God's authority. He doesn't care about God, doesn't care about people. This is not a good person. Can't possibly be the God figure in this story. But in that same town, there is a widow. 
And she kept coming to the judge with the same plea over and over again. Give me justice. He, of course, would not rule on her behalf, but she keeps coming over and over and over again in her pleas for justice. Now, widows at this time were some of the most vulnerable people in society. In a patriarchal world, the men held all the power. The court systems were particularly viewed as the world of men. So the fact that she's standing here alone implies that she has no man to stand behind, beside her. No brother, no brother-in-law, no father, no father-in-law, no one to stand with her and advocate for her. She is alone, without status or security. But this was not God's intent for her. This was not what God had planned for her. God had always looked out for the most vulnerable in society, especially widows, and called his people to do the same, to lift up and untangle those who were caught in the web of injustice. God built tangible protections into Israel's law. We see it all over the place in the book of Deuteronomy. It was, it was clear God's people were supposed to care for this woman, but somehow she's fallen through the cracks. Her community has dropped her. There's no one to protect her, no one to center her voice, no one to come to her defense. So here she is, presenting her own case to the judge. <clears throat> And she's a tough prosecutor. Uh, widows were usually described as being um, weak and helpless, but she is far from fragile. She is fierce. She is persistent. She is strong. She defies expectations coming to the judge day after day with the same thing. Give me justice. Do your job. Barbara Brown Taylor says of this moment, she knew what she wanted and she knew who could give it to her. She was willing to say what she wanted out loud, day and night, over and over, because saying it was how she remembered who she was. It was how she remembered the shape of her heart. In the Hebrew, the word for widow is closely related to the word for silent one. So in a world that silenced her, she declared her dignity and worth. In a world that belittled her and took away her voice, in an unjust world that honestly would have rather she just stayed in the shadow. She said, I am made in the image of God and you will hear me. Give me justice. She would not be silenced. She would not be ignored. She persisted. The, wi the widow in our story was resolute in her hope that she would be heard and delivered. She was resolute in her hope that she mattered and that she wouldn't be forgotten. Which reminds me of one of my friends here at Lake. One of the joys of, of COVID, if there are some joys, um, has been getting to know some new people here at Lake. Not new to Lake, but new to me. And I wanna talk to you about one of them today. Her name is Patty. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call her Patty. Um, about seven years ago, she experienced unimaginable loss. Her husband passed away. She lost her job. She lost her home of 55 years, and her daughter was diagnosed with cancer. That's all in one year. Hers is a story of loss, layered on loss, layered on loss. It's the kind of grief that you can't even imagine that you think is gonna just swallow you right up. Years later, she moved out here to California, and if you met her today, you would see a woman who is joyful, 
full of life, full of passion, and who carries herself with this gravity. She has what I want to characterize today as resolute hope. She believes with every inch of her being that God is with her and God is for her. I asked her to share with us what enables her to, to, to maintain that kind of hope in the midst of so much pain. And she said, time and reflection, which I thought was really honest. She said, these days, the recognition that I'm not in control comes sooner rather than later because now I have this well of situations where God has proven himself faithful. And that's what I, what I feel from her, that it's almost like God has dug out this well in her, filled, filled up that well with his faithful acts, and now it's overflowing. My friend said that God speaks to her of his faithfulness through song, especially the song that Cedric sang just before I started speaking, his eye is on the sparrow. Should I feel discouraged? Why do the shadows come? Why does my heart feel lonely and long for my heavenly home when Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. My friend is a modern-day illustration of, this, of our widow's faithful persistence and resolute hope. When everything around her told her to despair, she chose to believe that God was with her and he's faithful. Back to our story. In the end, the judge relents. Luke tells us, for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come back and attack me. Do you hear that? The, the judge relents because he thinks that this widow, one of the most vulnerable people in society, was going to hurt him. The English translation here is softer than the Greek. In verse 5, he actually says that he relents because he's scared that she's going to give him a black eye. It's a boxing term. This powerful, macho, corrupt judge with this hard outer shell, I don't care about people. He's threatened simply because of her tenacious pursuit of justice. He crumbles in the face of her persistent truth-telling. In the end, he relents and he gives her what she's asking for. And the parable concludes. Now, I want to remind us not to reduce this parable to a simple story about persistence in prayer because if we read it at face value, it would seem to say that Jesus is saying, if you just bother God enough, he'll answer you eventually. But I don't know about you, that's not the God I want to pray to. Again, parables are about the kingdom of God coming in revolutionary power to turn the world upside down. So what is Jesus doing here? Luckily, we get some more insight and explanation in verses six through eight. Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he'll see that they get justice and quickly. Jesus makes it very clear here that God, our God, his heavenly father is nothing like the unjust judge. Jesus was using the judge as a contrast here, as a foil to show us everything that God is not. The judge has no integrity, doesn't care about people, gets annoyed by continual requests for help, and plays a really important role in a really unjust system. But God is different, says Jesus. And then he goes on to show us how. One of the most important observations that we can make about this parable church family is that Jesus put God in contrast to the judge. And by doing that, 
he was telling us what God is like. God doesn't relate to us like the unjust judge. Instead, we learn that God chose us. In verse 6, we learn that God has appointed chosen ones, a group of people who have no right on our own to be called beloved children of the king, who would later be called the church, but that's who we are. No matter what the world tells us, no matter how many unjust judges mistreat us, we are chosen. This has always been an important declaration for the people of God when they were treated unjustly. Listen to how Peter talks, about, talks to the scattered church who was being persecuted. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Church family, when we are in a scary place, like right now, we're in a scary place. When we're facing something that we don't even want to think about, we just want to pretend like it's not there, it's so overwhelming. Or when we don't see a way out, which honestly in, in our home has been trying to figure out what to do with school in the fall. When we're scared, God's gift to us is not certainty or safety. God's gift to us is love. He chose us, that's his gift. His promise isn't a new easy path or a new easier life. It's a new identity. Chosen ones, beloved. So the first thing we learn about God in this passage is that God chose us, we belong to him. And second, God hears us. He hears the desperation and the despair of his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. He doesn't turn away in apathy. He doesn't question our pain. He hears us our raw, ugly cries for help because he made us. He formed us in his image and he loves us. So we learn God chose us, he hears us, and finally God brings justice. He will not keep putting off the cries of his people for tangible change. He will bring his kingdom to fruition. In fact, it's already here. God's reign and God's rule are breaking into this world and the king is making himself known. We'll get more on that later. So if this is who God is, and this is what his kingdom is like, how then should we live? What is this parable calling us to do? Well, the widow shows us the way. She gives us a model of resolute hope as we wait for the kingdom to come. Just like my friend at Lake, the, the widow believes with every inch of her being, um, that God is with her and that God is for her. She has this gritty, lived-in kind of hope. It's not some pie-in-the-sky, naive belief that God is somewhere out there. She, it's, it's lived in. It's real. It's been worn for years. It's the kind of hope that's been dragged through the terror of Good Friday. I heard that from a pastor the week, this week. The kind of hope that's been dragged through the terror of Good Friday that's waited through the darkness of Holy Saturday, then arose to the grace of God on Easter Sunday. It's, it's, it's resolute hope. So what does that look like in our lives today? Well, first we see that Jesus offers us this astounding promise that we get to experience intimacy with our Heavenly Father through prayer. So we come back to prayer. But do you see how beautiful this call to prayer is? 
It's not a message about how we need to pray without ceasing in order to bend God's ear. He's already chosen us to be part of his family. He's already listening. He's already promised a a kingdom in which all things would be made right. And it's already here. This is the God that we're called to worship. The widow gives us a model of prayer that reflects resolute hope in God's kingdom. As Jesus told us in Luke 11, we're called to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come prayers are prayers that long for all things to be made right, that long for God's kingdom to come where there would be no more mourning or crying or death or pain. I shared a story in a video about three years ago about um, our first miscarriage that I wanted to share again today. I was eight weeks pregnant. I'm excited about welcoming another little bundle of joy into our lives. And I went to the doctor, doctor's appointment and she couldn't hear the heartbeat. We, I was miscarrying and we had lost the baby. Um, It was the beginning of December Uh, as we were leading up to Christmas, and I hadn't realized how much of of our language during that time in church is about a baby and hoping for a baby and the joy of a baby and and the light that a baby is going to bring to our world. And those words were honestly infuriating to me. Um, I decided that I was going to opt out of Christmas that year. I just couldn't, I couldn't handle all of this talk about a baby because I was so deeply mourning the loss of our own baby. All the talk in Advent and the themes of expectation and waiting were lost on me too because if you've been through a miscarriage or 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 walked with someone, it is in and of itself a long process of waiting. But the waiting is excruciating, not hopeful. So I wasn't in a good place. Um, But then one night, uh, we were here in this room Uh, on a Saturday night service, and Pastor Greg talked about Christmas. But he talked about how the promises of God were fulfilled in some sense with the birth of this baby Jesus, but that they would ultimately be fulfilled when Christ comes again in his kingdom power. What we celebrate at Christmas is just the beginning, just a taste of God's victory, which will be fulfilled in the end. Now that that refocus didn't take away the pain. I was still swimming in pain. But it helped me to find God in the pain. I didn't always feel hopeful, but I could choose hope. And I could choose to pray in hope. Your kingdom come. God, you've got to make this right. You've got to make us whole. Your kingdom come prayers come from a place of desperation and despair. They come from a place of humility, vulnerability, submission. They relinquish control. They say, I'm not in control. They relinquish order. I can't make order. I can't make sense out of what's happening. And they surrender to the king. But while they're prayers of, of desperation, they're also prayers of hope. We can be desperate for God to provide and hopeful in the faithfulness of the God that we're praying to. And because there's trust and hope, there's also this deep sense of intimacy. When we pray, your kingdom come, 
We know that God is right here with us, warts and all. There's nothing that we're going to say that's going to surprise him. There's no thought that's too ugly. There's, a no, there's not an emotion that's too scary for God. He's here for it. He is with us, and he's listening. And finally, your kingdom come prayers are constant. We see in verse 6 that God's chosen ones cry out to him day and night. And that's less about constant verbiage to God, constant words coming out of our mouth, but more of a prayer posture in which we are always anticipating that God is on the move and that he's breaking in somewhere around us. And we're excited to join him. Jesus invites us in this passage into an intimacy with the Lord of the universe that brings us great joy and comfort and peace and hope. So we're called to pray, but we're not called to pray alone. This resolute that we find through an intimate relationship with God also calls us to act on behalf of those who are voiceless and hopeless. We're called to action. Henry Nowen says it much more beautifully than I ever could that prayer and action have to go together. He says, if prayer leads us into deeper unity with a compassionate Christ, it will always give rise to concrete acts of service. And if concrete acts of service do indeed lead us into a deeper solidarity with the poor, the hungry, the sick, the dying, and the oppressed, they will always give rise to prayer. We're called to both prayer and action. And I think in this passage, we are called to just action, action that manifests God's justice in this world. What do I mean by that? Pastor Chuck said last week that justice is about promoting the shalom, the well-being of a community, especially for the most vulnerable. As Pastor Greg says, justice means taking broken things and making them whole. We see broken people and we do everything that we can to make them whole. We see brokenness in ourselves and we say, God, you've got to make me whole. We see brokenness in our systems and our institutions and we work together to make them whole. In the Old Testament, the word that's translated justice means treating people equitably with the dignity, the dignity that they deserve as humans who are made in the image of God, which sometimes means punishing wrongdoers. And sometimes, often, it means caring for the most vulnerable. I did a quick search in all the times in the, New Test in the Old Testament that talk about the most vulnerable people in Israel. That was the poor, the widows, the orphans, the strangers, or the immigrants. And over and over again, you see this word justice pop up too. Isaiah 1 says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. We see it again in Deuteronomy 24, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. And it just goes on and on, these ideas of justice and caring for the most vulnerable, they, they go together in our scriptures. So enacting biblical justice means that we care the, for the most vulnerable people around us who are being in t taken advantage of. I love how the Bible Project says it, that justice is, making, is courageously making other people's problems my problems. This definition of justice seems also to line up with what we see the widow doing in our passage, although in this case she's advocating for herself. Ultimately, church family, we're called to do justice because it's who God is and this is the most exciting part. It's, it's what he's doing right now. 
So if we're connected to God in prayer, if we are aligned with the God of the universe by the power of his Holy Spirit, we're going to bump up against justice because it's what he's doing in the world around him. So if we are with him, then we are going to, to find ourselves immersed in the work of justice. Psalm 68 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. This is who God is. It's what he's doing. And we're just along for the ride. Justice invites us to see the image of God in each person and to create a world where they might thrive. So often, church family, we are more like the unjust judge in this story than we are like the widow. Dominique Guillard, an expert in mass incarceration with the Evangelical Covenant Church and who many of us got to meet on a Zoom call about a month ago, um, says most believers today acquiesce to, social, to societal injustice because we know how radically different our lives would look if we were to intentionally step out of our comfort zones into the faithfulness to which scripture calls us. Within this society that's predicated on comfort and the avoidance of suffering at all costs, we have to cultivate counter-cultural disciples who will intentionally choose discomfort and suffering for the sake of the kingdom. Church family, God is inviting us to join him in this work of kingdom justice, biblical justice, to be counter-cultural disciples who walk in resolute hope that God's kingdom is at hand, which might mean that we are gonna be facing off against our own unjust judges, which might mean that we nag those in power on behalf of the most vulnerable, which will mean that we ruffle some feathers along the way. But again, it all comes from this posture of resolute hope that we believe with every inch of our being that God is on the move and I am desperate to be part of it. There are so many of you, so many people here at Lake who have joined God in this work of biblical justice. And today, I just want to highlight a few of them. Um, the first is Ray. Ray Thompson is on our ministry council, and he has spent years loving and serving men and women who have been incarcerated. He, alongside of many of you here at Lake, runs one program giving encouragement to fathers in jail um, and teaches also a seminary class to equip men who have been incarcerated to share the gospel with their peers, both when they're in jail and prison and when they go home to their communities. Ray is a picture to us of God's resolute hope in action. He and his team show us that God is on the move, that God's kingdom is at work in our prison systems. Others of you have joined God's work, God's kingdom work by participating in STARS, a tutoring and mentoring program here in Northwest Pasadena, formerly known as the Lake Avenue Church Foundation. We've learned that poverty plus lack of access to educational resources really hinders a kid's ability to thrive. And what I have seen here at Lake Avenue Church is that we want kids to thrive. We want kids to get a glimpse of God's kingdom at hand. So STARS, partnering with many of you, invest in kids so that they can reach their God-given potential and so that they never have to meet Ray Thompson years down the road. This is biblical justice, taking what's broken and making it whole. One last way I'm seeing us live this out right now is by serving and caring for our widows and our older brothers and sisters who live alone 
in this season, um, in the season when they are extremely vulnerable to COVID, um, when they're experiencing even more isolation than before, our care team of 50 people is making sometimes weekly calls to them, making sure that they don't slip through the cracks like the widow in our story did. We are making other people's problems our problems. If you want more information on how to join in those movements of God, those will be posted on the comments of wherever you're streaming. Church family, there are so many ways that you are living into this calling, and we're called to do so more and more. In closing, our parable is a call to trust the king who is on the move, whose kingdom is breaking in all around us, and we live out that, that trust, that, that resolute hope through persistent prayer bound together with loving and just action. But we don't go alone. We go together and we go with God. So perhaps this parable is about bothering and, ba- and badgering and nagging, but perhaps it's the other way around. Perhaps God, the defender of widows, the father to the fatherless, is the one bothering us. Hey, I'm here. Talk to me in prayer. Hey, I'm on the move. Come join me in biblical justice and action. Perhaps God is the one who's banging on our door, persistently inviting us to spend more time with him in prayer, persistently inviting us to join him in his mission. And the question that the parable is asking us is will we be bothered? How will we respond to God's resolute hope that we could be the people that he's created us to be? Jesus says at the end of this passage, will the son of man find faith when he comes again? I pray he will. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died so that we might have hope. Our ability to respond to you and the things that we've talked about today in prayer and justice, those are wholly dependent on you dying on our behalf. It came at a great cost, your death on the cross. So Jesus, this morning we thank you, we praise you, we honor you. We are not worthy of that sacrifice and yet we accept it. Lord, would you give us your hope when we feel lost, your love when we feel empty, your grace when we're filled with shame. Thank you that your kingdom is here. We see it breaking in all around us and it will one day be brought to completion. Give us hope and patience as we wait in faithfulness. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters, um, we come to the communion table. And we remember God's chosen one, the true, just judge, who brought about our righteousness, his justice, through his death on the cross. We remember his sacrifice for us this morning. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, he broke it, gave thanks, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That same night after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us, for whenever we drink this cup and eat this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in all of his glory with his kingdom. So church family, we are about to sing a song and now might be a good time for you to gather together your communion elements.
And then at the end of our, our, of our worship song, I will lead us to all take communion as one church body connected across technology together. So let's prepare our hearts for communion. Mm -hmm. 